I love watching that video. I don't know if you know this or not. They're going to hate me for doing this. But Mary and Joseph, that, that couple on there, that's a, a recently engaged couple in our church, Carlos and Becky. And uh, here's what's a crazy story. This is, this is the beauty of working at Fielder. So Carlos was my administrative assistant, and then he went to Brazil, and Becky stepped up to be my administrative assistant, and Carlos came back, and by God's divine power, they're going to be married, and they are the biggest power couple you have ever met in this world. And I feel uniquely a part of it, uh, so if you're looking for love, uh, come work at Fielder Staff. It's great. Man, I love how God orchestrates things, and even in small ways, I was in here on Friday. We had a team of five of us, and we were, we were just walking around praying like we do every single Friday that we can, and that song was the song the Lord brought to my mind that we just sang, that you are good, you're good, oh, you are good, you're good, oh, that song just captivates my heart. God is good. Now listen, there's some of you in here, it's going to be so easy for coming here, amen and glory, and I pray that you amen back. You can get me all fired up in here. But there are some of you, you're in here and you're going, Jason, I know, I know I'm supposed to believe that God is good, but right here, I'm not feeling it. I just, I got this sense, God's been telling me as I've been praying, there are some of you and you are at the end of yourself and you're just praying there's some kind of message for you. And I believe God has designed this message for you and mine. Because today I want to talk about a superpower that God has given us as the church, a power that we would all want to claim if we just knew how strong it was that so few of us in the church actually claim. It's called hope. It's this power that God has given us as the believers in Jesus Christ that can completely change us. That's the whole thing I've been talking about. You walk in one way, you walk out different because of the power of hope. It is this power that can actually rescue you from depression, from the pit that feels like you're about to go to the pit of hell. That, that hope can pull you out. Hope can turn a situation that feels like an impossibility to now just an opportunity for God to show up. Hope. I was just reminded recently of the power of hope in something that happened a year ago. And I've talked about my injury so much, it's just, it, it's getting old Except there's one small part I've never talked about publicly before in this room. In fact, my children and my wife are about to hear this for the first time. But I, a year ago, had gone to meet the doctor, uh, the surgeon, the, one, the potential surgeon to operate on my hamstring when it had gotten severed from my leg. And the, the doctor said the words that were the most painful I have ever heard in my life. He had gone back to look at the MRI and he came back and he said, Jason, listen, I'm sorry. I don't feel comfortable operating on you. I just, there's a sciatic nerve in there. There's too many things that could go wrong. Then he said, well, just, uh, you want to talk about slap in the face. He said, if you were 20-something, I would do it. <laughs> I almost want to go, spit in his face. And I, I didn't. But I was, I was like, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? Like, I, no, I, I don't want to. I, I mean, I'm just going to have a limp the rest of my life? And his words were, I, I'm sorry, Jason. I just don't believe I can operate on you. And that was it. I walked out, and when I walked out, I was starting to slip into a depression. I didn't tell my wife and kids, I didn't want them to know how dark things were getting in my mind. 
my mind was starting to wander to places. This was a season when I was here in the church, and every Sunday I had to preach on a stool. I had to sit down, and, and I started to ask the question, do you, do you mean, like, am I going to have to preach the rest of my life sitting on a stool? Am I never going to be able to walk again and, and, and walk around and preach again? And, and I'm talking like a year before that, I'd run a marathon, and now, like, am I never going to be able to run again? And then my mind starts going to my kids, like, am I, am I never going to throw the football with my kids in the backyard again? I mean, one day when I have grandkids, am I not going to be able to get down and, and be with my grandkids on the floor because I, I can't move, and I'm, I'm starting to get overwhelmed by this. And I start sliding into this depression where I'm just, I'm in this fog, and I can't see straight, and I'm getting to the end of myself, and it's because I'm losing hope. And the next day, I call my doctor. He's, he's in the church. He's in this room right now. Many of you know him. His name is Dr. Chad Bartell. And I call my doctor, and I say, Chad, here's, here's what the surgeon said. And my brother Chad gave me the most beautiful news he could have given me. His word back to me was, oh, no, no, you're going to get your surgery, and you're not just going to walk again. You're going to run again. And it was... <laughs> It was remarkable because the moment he said that, it was like he just bah, slapped me in the face and said, wake up. Like, I have an infinite God who fights for me. I have a God that can do the impossible. What am I doing wallowing around in, in depression going, well, I, I guess I have no hope because this one surgeon can't do it. It was like I just snapped back and said, okay, all right, we'll do this. He said, Jason, I'm going to make a few phone calls, but we're going to get you that surgery. And in that moment, when I got off the phone with Chad, it was like my whole world had changed. Immediately, hope surged inside of me. Immediately, I started to believe in my God. I started to pray differently, going, okay, God, this is a chance for you to show your power. Hey, here's the craziest thing about it. Nothing had changed in my circumstances. I didn't have a surgeon who would operate on me. I was still walking like this because I hadn't had surgery. My hamstring still wasn't attached. Nothing in my circumstances had changed, and yet everything had changed because one man spoke a message of hope to me. That's the power of hope. If you see Chad Bartell, give him a hug. Tell him thank you. Because not only did he make some phone calls and I get my surgery, but here I am and I can, woo, I can move around like I need to. Praise God. It's interesting, though. Here's what's funny. Uh, you know, my left hamstring is as strong as it's ever been. Now it's my right hip that's starting to give me trouble. But you know what? I believe I got a God who's infinite in power, and he can handle my hip and my hamstring and my head and everything else in between. And so here's what I want to say to you. You have an infinite God. Whatever situation you dragged in here into this room, you have a God who can handle it. He doesn't need to change your circumstances. He just needs to show you who he is, and then you'll have the power to believe, and you'll walk out of here a different person. That's the power of hope. It's crazy. There are all these studies who are, that are done right now by people who aren't even believers, like just in the secular world, in the psychological world, about the power of hope. I bought a book. It's called The Power of Hope, and it, it is written by Princeton University. It's, not, it's completely secular. It's not Christian at all. It's actually a book about economics and how hope drives a country's economics. It's, it's evaluating the U.S. and some of the despair that we're feeling economically. is coming from the despair that we're feeling in our morale. Hope is drying up, and it affects the whole country. There are all these studies that are done about mental health, and the number one key ingredient for resiliency is hope. The moment somebody loses hope, that's the moment they start to slide into mental health struggles. Hope's the key, not circumstances, hope. There are all these people, the studies, marvelous ones done about the effect 
of people who are suffering from disease or injury or illness and the role that hope plays. And what they say is, if there is somebody, that kind of the definitive mark to know whether somebody is going to get better or get worse is to look at their hope level, their optimism. Because the moment they start moving into a hopeless state, that's usually when the mortality rate it increases exponentially. Because there's remarkable power in hope. But here's the thing about hope. The people who should have the most hope in this world are the people who gather together in the name of Jesus Christ. Because let me tell you about hope. Hope is fueled by faith. If you know Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Like you, you so believe in what you can't even see yet. That's faith. And that produces hope. And hope changes your life. If anybody should have hope, it should be you and me. And if ever we should recognize that hope, it should be during the Christmas season where we talk about the hope of the world, the birth of a man named Jesus Christ. So we're going to jump back into the Christmas story and we're going to focus specifically on the idea of hope. I want you to get your Bible. I want you to go to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2. Yeah, the, the Christmas story is the weirdest thing ever. There are two chapters in Matthew, two chapters in Luke, and for decades, every pastor has to preach from the same four chapters every December. It, and it can feel like it can get old, but it never gets old. There's always more to uncover in these four little chapters that tell the story of the birth of Jesus. So you're going to hear some very familiar words, but I want to show you how they drive for this marvelous truth called hope. Luke chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 8. Listen to what it says. It says, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. We're going to pause right there. He says, I, I want to tell you some good news, shepherds. Don't, don't be afraid. That one you've been waiting for. It says Christ the Lord, that, that word in Greek is Christos. It's from the, the verb creo, which means to anoint, the anointed one. If you were to go to Hebrew, that word is Mashiach, Messiah. The one you've been waiting for, the anointed one, has come in Bethlehem. Just as has been foretold. Now, what you need to understand about that particular message is this was a message of surging hope for these shepherds because of where they were. A little, little history lesson for you. I talk about this often at Christmas time, so bear with me if you've heard it before, but I think you need to understand this context. They had been about 700 years waiting for hope to come, and it hadn't come. Book of Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus came, he said, there's going to be one who's going to be born, this child to be born, he's going to be the son of God, prince of peace, everlasting father, that whole bit. That came in Isaiah. And then Assyria came in this world power, and they were waiting for the Mashiach, the Messiah, to come save them. And he didn't come. The nation of Israel falls in 722 B.C. Then Babylon comes onto the stage. Jeremiah prophesies about the Mashiach, and he's going to be coming. And they're waiting for him to come, and he doesn't come. And then the nation of Judah falls in 586 B.C. Then Persia comes in a charge after that. Then you have Daniel. And Daniel is a wise man in the land of Persia, and he gets a vision in the second half about the Mashiach who's going to come and bring salvation to the people and establish his government. And they get their hopes up again, and the Mashiach doesn't come. After Persia, it's the Greeks. After Greeks, it's the Romans. It's been 700 plus years, no Mashiach. 
And now they're overwhelmed. They're at the end of themselves. They're losing hope. And just when it's a wisp, like about to go away, the angel comes and says, guys, you've been waiting for 700 years. The Mashiach, the Christos, he's been born. And in that moment, hope surges inside of these shepherds. And you can see the way hope surges because of what they do. I want you to flip over to verse 15. Listen to their response. It says, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened while the Lord has made known, what the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Now, I, I want to stop there for a moment. I want you to think about what happened. They, they hear this message, and then it says, and the Bible, when you translate it, sometimes they use such formal language, but in verse 16, it says, they, they went with haste. That meant they ran their tails off to go see what was going on. Like they lifted up their shepherd's robe and they went sprinting over to see because they were so overwhelmed. Like, could it be the Messiah has finally come? And they sprint over there and they see it exactly the way the angels told them. And then it says in this very formal language in verse 16 or verse 17, it says, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. That's a fancy, way, a fancy way of saying they just couldn't shut up about all the good news that this angel had told them. They're exploding with hope like, guys, this is the one. The angels told us this is the one. And it says they begin to treasure all these and ponder them in their hearts. Hope is spreading. It's surging in everybody. Because that's what hope does. When one person gets hope, it spreads to another and to another and to another. Because when hope really wells up, you can't contain it. It starts to take over. When you get a room filled with people who have hope, you walk out of here a different person going, man, holy cow, what we just experienced right there. Because hope spreads. But let me tell you about hope too. Hope will make you do dangerous things. There's another story that's parallel to this. It's in Matthew 2. I want you to flip over to Matthew 2. We're going to go back to the familiar story of the Magi, the wise men. That's the three kings part of it. I want you to read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I want you to see what hope will drive people to do. Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So these, these magi, these wise men, come from the east. It doesn't give us specifics about where they come from, but they're coming to see this this baby who they believe to be born king of the Jews. Now, it's interesting on a number of facets because this was about a three-month journey to get from where they were likely in the land of Persia over to Jerusalem, and it would be incredibly expensive to travel, perilous. They would go through some deserts and hard places where they were bandits, and you would wonder, like, what would drive them to go all the way to Jerusalem? And here's what's interesting. I mean, you've got to ask the question, what in the world compelled them to even know that there would be a Jewish baby who would be king that they would need to see because they're from the East. Now, I don't know if you were here a couple of years ago, but we did this phenomenal sermon series at Christmas time all about the wise men. You should go back and listen to it. The very first sermon details out some incredible truths about these wise men and how they knew to look for Jesus. I'm gonna give you the, the very, very summarized version. Basically, these were descendants of Daniel. If you look at the book of Daniel, Daniel is called a magi. The same Hebrew word is used for Daniel, and he led the wise men, the Magi, in that area. And so he had a vision of the, the Messiah, the Mashiach, 
that God had given him. And apparently, he passed this news down generation, generation after generation after generation in the land of Persia, saying, one day the Messiah is going to come. Keep on the lookout. One day, keep passing it on until he comes. 500 years later, they're looking, waiting for the Mashiach to come, and they see in the heavens that the time has come. They had been hoping for 500 years, and the moment they saw it, hope well to the point where they were willing to take this perilous journey all the way to the other side of the known world because they want to see for their own eyes. And when they get there, they come bearing three gifts. I, I have it here for you to read, but I almost don't even need to read it for you. But I want, you, I want to make sure you see it comes from the Word of God. Matthew 2, verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. This is one of the most familiar parts of the Christmas story. You know about the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But what you may not know is each one of those was a token of hope. It was intended to show what they were hoping in. Gift of gold. That's the hope that this child would be royal. He would be a king. Remember, they're going to see the king of the Jews. Now listen, nothing about this child looked like he was a king. He was born to peasants in total obscurity. Not, not, they went to Jerusalem because that's where kings are supposed to be. He wasn't there. Nothing about this child looked like a king. But it was hope. Remember, it was the conviction of things not yet seen. They knew because they hoped that this child would be king. Second gift was frankincense. This, this is what priests use. You would burn incense in the temple. Nothing about this child looked like he was priestly. He didn't come from the lineage of Aaron. He didn't come from a family that did temple sacrifice. None of that. And yet they believed, they hoped, they were convinced, convicted that this child would be the one to represent people to God. He would be their great high priest. Then the third gift, the gift of myrrh. That's what you use to for burial, to prepare the body, and spices to make sure they could be properly buried according to Jewish tradition. And there's nothing about this child that looked like he would be the sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. That was supposed to be a lamb. And yet they said, we believe he's going to be the sacrifice. And this gift symbolizes that our hope that this child can take away the sins of the world. Three gifts to show what hope looks like. And the most incredible thing when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is you see all three of those gifts come to fruition in Jesus Christ. The whole stories of the gospel are how Jesus really was the one they had put their hope in. He really was the king of the Jews. He really was the great high priest. He really was the sacrifice who would take away the sins of the world. He did everything they had hoped in. And at the end of all that, as Jesus is moving along in his life, he lays this truth bomb upon his followers to say, if you really want to know what to hope in, don't hope that I'm going to bring you riches. Don't hope that I'm just going to be a really good king. Don't even hope that I'm just going to be a lamb of God. I've got something even better for you. And what I believe to be the most important verse in the entire gospel of John, it's not, it's not John 3.16, even though that's the most known one, although I'll bet you there are many of you who have it memorized, it's John 14.6. In fact, probably you don't even have to look it up. You, you, many of you know it. But here's what it, what it says, John 14.6 and Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in that one statement, Jesus tells his whole purpose for coming. Jesus says every bit of why he's the one to be hoped in. Because I'm the way to the Father. I'm the truth of the Father. I'm the life 
from the Father. No one can get to him except through me. But there's another side of that last part. If you keep on reading in John 14, he says, listen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, no one can get to the Father except through me, but everybody who comes to me always gets to the Father. I'm the way. And when you understand Jesus is the way, that's when hope comes into your life. This is a real theoretical thing, but I've, I've sensed the Lord wanting me to share with you something that somebody shared with me, and I'm going to try to be technologically savvy. This could go terribly wrong. We'll find out in one second. But I'm going to try to connect to this TV screen behind me. We'll see if that works. Uh, let's see. Yep. Okay. There it is. Now, we tried this, and it worked sometimes, and then we tried it, and it didn't work sometimes. So... We'll see. Okay, good, good, good. All right. Now, I'm going to do something called a bridge illustration. You may want to write this down on a piece of paper or take some notes, but somebody shared this with me a long time ago, and it was very, very helpful for me to understand what this passage is talking about. So the bridge illustration starts with this. I'm not going to get artistic here. That's you. And on the other side of this big old chasm is God. Now, let me tell you why this matters. Let me, let me describe you and me for a moment. One of the best words to describe us is the word sin. This, this well, we froze up on here, didn't we? Okay. I'm going to write a little bit more here and see if I can get it to work. This is what it was doing earlier. Okay, I'm going to ask you to bring that whiteboard out from the side if you don't mind, because it's going to keep doing this. I don't want you to miss it, though. We're ready for it. Here, here's what I want you to understand. And let's go ahead and slide this off to the side a little bit. But There's a state of being that you have to get comfortable with in yourself. And it's recognizing, looking in the mirror, and being willing to see who you really are. Thank you, ladies. Can we give them a big hand for being so helpful over here? They were prepared. All right. Thank you. Ooh, you even, even remember the marker. I totally forgot that. Okay. So we'll try it again. Okay. Over here is you. Over here is God. Now let me tell you, like I said before, you have to look at yourself and see who you really are. This is the one place right now that is getting less and less politically correct. To, to use the word sin. No, they're just different. They've chosen a different pathway. They have a, a different view system on life. But the Bible says, no, this is actually this thing called sin. Where God says, I've actually, I've called you to live a certain way, but you've rebelled against my rules and regulations and chosen your own way versus my way. And when you sin, it creates all kinds of problems. It creates a feeling of failure. You know there's something wrong with you. It creates brokenness. You, you feel disconnected from God. You feel rejected by God and by others because you don't sense his presence. Oftentimes you feel utterly alone. You feel helpless. You don't know how to change. And it gets to the end and you feel utterly hopeless. I want to say there are some of you right now in this room. And you would have to say helpless and hopeless would be the two words that would most describe you. I'm going to come back to that in a second. On the other side, though, you have God. Let me tell you about God and how I would describe him. God is holy. 
There is no sin in him whatsoever. He is the definition of holiness and purity. But because he's holy, he has power you and I don't have. But God is also love. And because he has power and love, he will never reject us. He will always accept us. There's nothing we can do to make him reject us because his love is so powerful. But because of it, he also restores what's broken. He's also a healer. And because he can heal all situations and restore what's broken, he brings peace and joy and hope. All these things we talk about at the Christmas season, these are the things that God brings. What you most want in your life is peace when everything feels like it's in chaos. You want to feel joy when you feel overwhelmed by things that are hard. You have pain and you're so tired of being hurt. You want healing and all of it is found in God. But here's the problem. There's this massive chasm between the two of us. And if you try to jump, you know where you'll end up. You can't make it. Down here is this thing called death. Ultimately, physical death, all of a spiritual death. Okay, we know we want to get to God. How do we get there? Okay, well, you know, that's why you're here this morning. Church, right? Go to church, be a part of the church. That'll get me there. Let me go ahead and tell you about that. You, you will never make it just trying to go to church. One of the biggest mistakes I hear is when people say, no, I've always been a Christian. I grew up in church. You could live, literally live in the church, camp right there in the back of the stage, and it would not save you. There's no amount of going to church that can overcome this chasm between us and our sin and God who is holy. Okay, well, I get that. So, you know, what I'll do is I'll try good works because God wants me to be good. I'll try to stop cussing so much. I'll try to uh, be kind to people. I'll try to help the homeless. I'll, I'll do some good things and, and try to be good and muster up strength. But it's just never going to be enough. There's no amount of good you can do to overcome the bad you've committed against an infinite God. Okay, well, that's fine. I know what you're really after, Jason. Give some money, that'll get me there. As long as I, as long as I tithe, as long as I give some money. Listen, I'm going to be honest with you. You could give every last penny you have. But if you, if you think you're going to buy God's affection, you are dead wrong. There's no amount of money you and I have that can overcome this chasm. And you may try it and you'll go boop, boop, boop. You can't make it. No way. And here we are, hopeless, helpless, broken, rejected, alone, dead in our sin, feeling like a failure, and we're going, what do I do? And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, but everybody who comes to me comes to the Father. Jesus is the bridge and the means by which you and I are able to come to get everything we need in God. When Jesus says, I am the way, that is the best message you will ever hear in your life. God has everything you want. Yeah, but this, this situation is impossible. Praise God, you got an impossibly powerful God. Yeah, but I'm so broken. Praise God, you got a God who heals. Yeah, but my life's in chaos. Praise God, you got a God who brings peace. Yeah, but I'm miserable. Praise God, you got a God who brings joy. I'm at the end of myself. Praise God, you got a God who will bring hope. Everything you need is in God the Father. And Jesus says, I'm the way to the Father. I'm the truth of the Father. And I'm the life of the Father. You can't get there unless you come through me, but everybody who comes to me gets everything they want in the Father. That's the hope 
he's talking about when Jesus says, I am the way. Best message you will ever hear. And it can go in one ear and right out the other and do absolutely nothing for you unless you understand three things. They're not complicated. You have to know who you really are. You have to know what you really need. And then you have to know how to get there. Very simple things. I want to start back over here. You have to know where you really are. You got to stop pretending. You got to stop putting on your little plastic fake smile, coming to church, acting like everything's okay. Can I just tell you that plastic fake smile is from the pit of hell itself. Playing a little church game is what keeps you from experiencing the life of Almighty God. There's a certain moment we need to go, okay, God, I admit it. I, I get down on my face, I beat my chest, and I say, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm broken. I, I, can't, I can't do what's right. Every time I try, I fall back into that same addiction, that same pattern, the same broken. I keep hurting everyone else around me. I keep hurting myself. I'm a failure. I'm broken. I can't do it. I can't handle this. I'm weak. You have to know where you are. There are some of you in this room right here, right now, and that's where you are. But you also have to know where you can be. This is where hope surges. Because there are some of you, you're so aware of your brokenness that you can't possibly conceive that you have any hope. I'm convinced of this. I'm utterly convinced of this. There are some of you here today, and you are wrestling with the thought that this world may be better off without you. As I was praying on Friday, that was a, the convicting thought I had over and over, that there are some of you who are so at the end of yourself, you've just considered there's no way forward. There's no way that that damage can be undone. You've hurt so many people, you feel so useless that you're just wondering if this world wouldn't be better off without you. I want you to know it's a lie from the pit of hell, and he has you, the enemy has you in that thought. But let me tell you about my God. My God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and according to his, called according to his purpose, even that false thought. And you can be here this morning at the end of yourself believing this world doesn't even need you, and God can use that brokenness to show you there is a way to holiness and power and love and acceptance and restoration and healing and peace and joy and hope. And that way is Jesus Christ. And when you get at the end of yourself, you realize all your hope can be found in Christ. There's a reason God took on flesh, because he knew we wouldn't be able, but he wanted us to have hope. Great news of joy for all people. The Mashiach has been born, Christ the Lord. Go check it out for yourself. You got to know where you really are. You got to know where you can be, and you got to know the way to get there. Here's what I'm trying to say, guys. I think there are some of you, and I've already said it, who came in here feeling despairing. But there's a great danger that you're going to leave here feeling despairing. And that would be the great, greatest tragedy of all. I don't want a single person to leave this room feeling hopeless. I don't want a single person watching online feeling hopeless. If there's anything we can have in Jesus Christ, it is hope. Because we have faith. Because we have the assurance of what's hoped for, the conviction of what we can't even see. Yet we're looking around and our life looks miserable. It looks like there's no way out. But we hope. It was like me when, when Chad said, no, 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 we're going to get you that surgery. Nothing had changed, but hope came. Because I could visualize something different. 
God wants you to visualize something different. There can be change. You have hope. Not because you're good enough, not because I'm good enough, but because our God is good enough. And all you have to do is trust in him. But the question is, will you be willing to? Hear, hear me out, please. I, I want you to understand the only way you're going to leave this place with hope is if you understand how hope is grabbed. Hope is active. It's not passive. In fact, there's a great mistake you could make. I, I want to I make sure you understand the difference. Here's what I mean. Hope that's passive is really just wishful thinking. It, it, it's... Uh, let's say it's July, late July in August. It's like 114 degrees. There's not a cloud in the sky. And you go, man, I, I hope it rains soon. That's called wishful thinking, people. It's not going to happen. It's not going to rain because there's nothing we can do to think of it. We're saying, I wish it would, but I'm not really expecting it to rain. Or it could be some of you after Christmas vacation, you're going, man, I wish I could lose some weight, but you ain't doing squat to make it happen. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, it ain't going to come off. That's wishful thinking. That's not genuine biblical hope. That's passive. Some of you are going, man, I, I, I hope my life changed, but I'm not doing anything to actually change my life. That's wishful thinking. That's, that's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is active. Let me, let me tell you what that looks like. That, that looks like me going, because I have changed my diet and I'm exercising regularly, I have hope that I'm going to lose weight. It's an expectation because of action taken. That's biblical hope. Biblical hope is my life has been in shambles, but God has come into me and I'm praying now and I'm seeking God and I'm reading my word and I'm in the Christian community. And because of all this and the power of an infinite God, I have hope that my life is going to change. That's biblical hope. Biblical hope is active, not passive, which means as I finish up this sermon this morning, I'm asking you to take action, to take a step. I believe there are many of you here this morning, and God wants you to leave this place not despairing, but filled with hope, not mourning, but filled with joy, even if your circumstances don't change, because you remember you have an infinite God. So here's what it's going to look like. In a moment, we're going to have prayer team members who are going to come down front, and they're going to be ready to pray with you and for you. And let me tell you why. There are many of you, dozens and dozens of you who are here, whether you believe in Jesus or not. And you are overwhelmed by your circumstances. Christmas is weird that way. I mean, you, you heard Ashley even just mention it a little bit. There, there are times of the Christmas season when like, everything wrong in your life is just emphasized by the Christmas season. That financial burden that you have is just emphasized by all the things you can't buy. That family dysfunction is just emphasized when everybody gets together. The, the, the struggles that you're having in your health are just emphasized by all the things you used to be able to do and now you can't. For whatever reason, the Christmas season just seems to point out all of our brokenness and our pain and our suffering and the places we're overwhelmed and we need restoration. But here's what I want to invite you to do. I want to invite you to hope again in Jesus Christ. Here's what it's going to look like. We're going to have prayer partners and you're going to actually take action, take a step and come down front and grab hands with a prayer partner or put a hand on a shoulder and let them know how they can pray for you. And here's what they're going to do. They're going to take your need to the Father through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the way to the Father. He is the truth of the Father. He is a life from the Father. And they're going to take that need. And what you're saying is, no, I'm going to hope in my Lord. This thing will not overwhelm me. This thing will not conquer me because I have an impossibly huge God. 
So whatever it is, I'm going to bring it down front, and I'm going to say, pray for me. Pray for me. Here's what I have. Would you cry out to God for me? And we will join you, and we will take that need to a father who can do something about it. He may change to choose it. He may not, but here's what I can promise you. When you take your need before the Father, hope comes into you. And hope is what you need. You'll have a chance to do that. But I want to talk about a second thing. I think it's the most important it's the one I've been praying for the most. I believe there are some of you. And the step of faith you need to take is to say, I choose to believe in Jesus Christ for my salvation. There are some of you right now, and you know it as I'm talking through, you're stuck over here. You're trying all these things to be good enough to make it to God, and you know it's not working. You know it's not changing who you are. There is one means to the Father, and it is faith in Jesus Christ. But let me tell you about faith in Jesus Christ. He bids you come and die. He takes over. That's why that baptistry over here on the stage is so important. That baptistry is the symbol of death. You come up here and you're saying, I want the old me dead and gone. That powerless, sinful, broken failure, I want that person dead and gone. And I want to come out of the water a brand new creation in Christ Jesus. Believing that I have now come to the Father. It's in taking that step of faith that hope surges in you. There are some of you who are here. And God has brought you to the end of your rope so you'll finally let go of yours and grab onto his. But you don't have to leave here hopeless. You don't have to leave here wondering. You can leave here knowing that you have declared your faith in Jesus Christ. And when you place your faith in Christ, hope surges because you know the one in whom you believe. But it requires action. I was walking around the room. There is nowhere in this room that is more than 60 steps to get down here to the front. If somebody told you that your life could be in shambles and if you took just 60 steps, everything would change. Would you do it? It, it? No more than that, just just be bold and take some steps and come down. And everything in your life could change. Would you do it? Because I'm afraid there are some of you, and it's really that simple. Jesus said, I'm the way. Are you burdened? Are you overwhelmed? Come to me. He's inviting you. It's not hard. It's not complicated, but it requires faith. My life may look like it's at the brink of hell itself but my God can overcome anything and I'm ready to trust in him. I'm ready to die to myself and let Jesus Christ take over to be my Lord and Savior. If you're ready to do that, today can be your day of salvation. All the Father has for you can begin to come to you in the hope with it, but you're gonna have to choose to come. I'm gonna invite you all to stand up right now, if you will. I'm gonna invite the prayer partners to come move around the room. And we're gonna have them ready to meet with you. And if you're coming saying, I, I, need, I need prayer, I've got a situation that has me feeling overwhelmed, I'm ready to receive prayer for this need, to take this need before the Father, then I'm going to invite you to come find somebody. Let us pray over you. But most importantly, if you're going, okay, I'm ready. I need Jesus. I, I need to declare faith in him. Listen, we have counselors that will counsel with you. We have a T-shirt that we'll give you that says, Jesus in my place. Best present you'll get all year. You can get ready, get shorts on. And before you leave this room today, you can die to your old self and raise up a brand new creation in Christ. You can hit reset, fresh start on everything this morning and find hope in Christ. But it's going to take action. It can't be passive. It's going to take some steps of faith. If you want to come, you come. You respond as you need to.